This is games in schools and libraries. The podcast about board, card and digital games and the ways in which they can find a place in schools or at the local library. Hosting provided by the Games for Educators website www.g4ed.com G'day and welcome to Games in Schools and Libraries. My name is Giles Pritchard. I'm a teacher at uh, St George's Road Primary School in Shepparton, Victoria, and I use games in my classroom for all sorts of different reasons and uh, love doing so. I love talking about it as well. And uh, you can also find me on the internet at my blog, castlebymoonlight.blogspot.com, or on Twitter as P. And we're lucky enough also to have on this episode today uh, our usual co-host, Donald Dennis. Right, and I'm Donald Dennis. Uh, you can find me all over the internet as Walsfio or on Twitter as Onboard Games, um, because I'm the host of a podcast called Onboard Games, where we talk about, well, board games. I'm a librarian in Georgetown County, South Carolina, and with us today also is a previous co-host of Onboard Games, Scott Nicholson. Well, hello there. I'm Scott Nicholson. For those of you that uh, don't know me, I'm a uh, professor at Syracuse University, where I run the Because Play Matters Game Lab. For about five years, I was the host of a video podcast called Board Games with Scott, and was one of the co-hosts on the Onboard Games podcast. And I do research about uh, transformative games, games that change people, and gamification. Fantastic. This sounds like a really interesting um, topic. At the, uh, I understand, Scott, that at the moment you're writing an article about the gamification of the classroom. Can you uh, let us know a little bit about what that entails? Sure, yeah. So I was, uh, I guess I should start with, with laying out the groundwork a little bit. So the, the inspiration I had for coming on this podcast is I was listening to a previous episode where Don was discussing gamification and um, was not using it in quite the, uh, the right way. And so I said, you know, I should come on and chat with them about what gamification is and how it's different from game-based learning. Uh, because it's a very common mistake. In fact, uh, when I give talks about gamification to teachers, um, I always start with some slides explaining these differences because it's an easy mistake to make. Um, so gamification and, and game-based learning. Game-based learning is when you have some learning objectives and you create this activity in your classroom that is contained and the idea is people engage with this activity, they engage with the rules, they engage with the setting, um, but it's contained within a, a, a made-up world, a magic circle to use game theory speak, uh, game study speak. So the, the idea is that you set up a scenario, you give them a situation, they engage with the game, they may learn along the way, but it's this contained thing. Gamification, on the other hand, is applying a game-based layer to a real-world setting. And so the idea is there's something that's going on in the real world, and you're playing a game layer. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about today with gamification is actually more about things like classroom management and assignments and classroom structure, things where the students are doing work in the real world, but you've added a game-based layer to make it more engaging, uh, to make it more fun, or uh, to get people more engaged with what's going on. Now, there's some mushy crossover. You can use both together. You can have, like, Xbox has a gamification layer on top of games that you're playing. 
Um, but at least from um, uh, Gabe Zickerman, who's one of the folks that has really defined what gamification is, um, that's his presentation. And actually, I'll provide a link for the show notes where he talks through the difference between gamification and game-based learning. So it sounds a lot like the summer reading programs, the library, where kids earn points towards prizes and that kind of thing, where it's not the actual game that you're playing, but it's, it's sort of the game that goes on while you're doing other things. Right. That's exactly the, the summer reading programs where you're tracking books read. That's a gamification of the reading of the books because you've added a game based layer to something that's going on in the real world. So, Scott, what sorts of light you, you mentioned um, that we've got a real world activity. Let's take, you know, a normal run of the mill, um, you know, from my perspective, a primary classroom where the teacher is, you know, teaching literacy, um, numeracy, a range of different topics. What sorts of layers um, can be added to that that are those game layers that create that gamification? So I'll talk a little bit about this last semester I did an experiment. I taught two different classes uh, and I applied different gamification elements to these classes. And I took these elements from some of the state of the art writings on there's a book called Creating the Multiplayer Classroom, which uses elements from massively multiplayer online games and concepts from those and applies it to a classroom setting. So the idea, uh, I'll first lay out some of the basic ideas and then I can talk a little bit about how, what happened when I tried them, because I learned some pretty important lessons about this. So gamification, the way it's typically put together is that people use a system that I've, I call BLAP for uh, badges, levels and leaderboards, achievements, and points. And so what that means is for everything someone does, they earn points. And as they earn points, there's – in order to make it easier to refer to how many points someone has, there's a leveling system. So as they earn points, they go up in levels. Now, if you have a game structure, if someone gets higher in level, you want to give them more challenging things because that keeps them in this state of flow. The idea of flow is that you want to give someone more challenging experiences, they get better. You could also use leaderboards where as someone gets more and more points, they go up in the leaderboards. And so there's actually a ranking between the students. You can have achievements set up so that when students um, – do different things in the class that may or may not be related to getting points, but let's say perfect attendance, or they do something like that, um, or they're a good helper or whatever, they can earn special achievements. Um, and then badges, which can correspond to major class activities, major class goals, um, or can correspond to the achievements. But the idea of badges is there's some sort of public display of those badges. But by looking at someone's set of badges, creates a profile about that person. This form of points, levels and leaderboards, achievements and badges is currently what's being used by a lot of people and say that's gamification. Now, so that the problem with that is um, when it's all used as a reward. And that's the other half of what I've been doing with research is when you use rewards to try and change behavior. Um, it can be problematic because if you use rewards for trying to change behavior in the long term – then actually you're going to be worse off if you ever really get rid of those rewards. Research has shown us that once you reward some, someone for doing something, if you take away that reward, they're going to be less interested in doing that thing in the future unless something else has happened along the way to help them find meaning, find interest in that activity they were doing, which is actually a problem with libraries and summer reading programs. If I entice a, a, a kid to read books by giving them rewards – and nowhere along the line do I also create situations where I help them find this love of reading, find this meaning in reading. Then when those rewards go away, 
their interest in reading books is going to decrease as well.、Um, And we see that we see a plummet of interest in teenagers when they age out of summer reading. We see a plummeting of their engagement with library services. I don't think that's a fair assessment because I've got a 13-year-old son who was never engaged in a summer reading program, but his interest has just plummeted naturally. You know, he would read at home. He would do his reading. We didn't engage in our in our library program because that was not the kind of thing he was excited about. But His interest just declined normally without having anything to do with rewards than lack of rewards. Okay, that, and I can't speak to a single case, you know. But, but what I'm what I'm presenting from you is what the what research is showing when they look at lots of cases.、Um, that's what I'm. Well, but I mean, is, could, is it possible that there's just that trend that, hey, all of a sudden at this point, boys. All of a sudden, start to have more hormones and more distractions and things that don't have to do with do with reading and come into their lives. So, I mean, is I mean, how certain is it that this period at which we take away this benefit has anything to do with the summer reading rewards sort of evaporating? Well, so that's that's what's called a history effect. So the idea is that there are other things that are going on that the sort of causation and correlation do not necessarily go hand in hand. Um, and this is where there's actually some studies going on right now at Syracuse, where they're trying to understand. We're looking at kids that are in summer reading programs and kids that are not in summer reading programs to compare those groups to see does actually the interest wane more quickly for people that were rewarded for reading than for people that were not rewarded for reading. So that's actually that research is happening. So there's not results of that from the library setting yet that I know of.、Uh, but that's how you study it: is you look at large sets of people and say these are people who got these rewards; these are people that didn't. We look at how their interest declines, and the research that we've seen from education.、Um, And so, there's actually a great book by Alfie Cohn called "Punished by Rewards," which is just study after study after study that shows how when we use rewards, we actually decrease people's internal motivation to do something. So, Scott, you're talking. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're talking a little bit、um, about you know those in, extrinsic sort of motivational things where you're giving stickers or you're giving、uh, you know as you said the the blap system.、Um, you know. Is 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 that is the gamification in that sense different from the normal sort of extrinsic motivational things that you might see in a classroom, like you know teachers giving stickers and etc.?、Um, or is it is there an overlay? So from what I've presented so far, it's no different.、Um, it's just. The, the name gamification came out a few years ago,、uh, but it's a concept that's been around with us for decades,、uh, for more than that. Using these reward systems, if you trace it all the way back to the military with badges and ribbons, and、uh, Napoleon actually talked about how a man will fight long and hard for a piece of colored ribbon.、Um, so we've been using these sort of systems for some time. So the term is a new term for something that we've been doing for a while. Where this gets interesting now is when you start to think about, all right, what if instead of trying to use these game elements and stickers and things like that to create rewards, what if we try to use these things to help the students find a deeper meaning in what's going on? And this is where my own research is something called meaningful gamification comes out, where I'm saying, all right, what if we use games to help people engage more deeply with what's happening?、Uh, one example is with badges. So. Your typical way that you would think about using badges is someone does something and they are rewarded by being given a badge. So they, if you think of like Boy Scout badges or something like that, when someone does activities, they then get a badge. What I'm working toward, and there's this concept that's out there, it's called passion badges. And the idea of a passion badge is that you let the learners create their own badges. 
based upon what they feel they've done really well or what they have really enjoyed engaging with. So you may have class for a while, and then rather than assigning people badges, you give everyone a blank sticker at markers and say, now I want everyone in this class to think about something. Uh, the term I use with kids sometimes is we're all going to be superheroes. Think about what kind of superhero you are, what kind of science superhero are you. What have you enjoyed the most? What, did, what are you going to be proud of? Make yourself a badge about that. And then you use that as a method of reflection and a method of communication, a way for, for kids to talk to each other about what they liked, about what they felt really strong about. You could do the same thing with reading, where you help people to create and reflect upon what they got out of the books they've read. And what is the one thing that really sticks to you? If you were to take on one of these characters from all these books you read, who would you take on and why? And the idea is that you flip around the system a little bit, and you empower the learners to be able to create their own structure rather than enforcing the structure upon them. And that's this shift from an external reward to something now that's more meaningful, that's coming out of, and it's, it's a reflection activity now. They, they are thinking about themselves um, and thinking about what they've done that they're proud of and how can they communicate that to their parents? How can they communicate that to their peers? And one way of doing it is by allowing them to select badges that they want to wear and create their own badges. Um, it also has this nice thing of getting people in groups and peer groups that if a number of people pick the same badge, say, I want that badge, and they pick the same badge, well, then you can group those folks together and they can really explore their strengths and move forward very quickly. That sounds like a really interesting um, interesting concept. I know that in um, education here in Victoria at the moment, we are sort of realigning a lot of what we do in accordance with um, a, a, a body of research that you know assigns effect sizes to um, different aspects of the classroom, and certainly one of the one of the most um, obvious one of the most strongest um, effect sizes is that student goal setting. Um, how do you turn or, or utilize that, or how have you utilized that as a as a part of your gamification process? Well, so let me talk a little bit about things, some things I tried and failed, and how it ended up leading towards what you're talking about with student goal setting. So. It, what I did is I tried out in these classrooms some of the things that are, were being pushed as state-of-the-art in classroom management. One is the concept that in the first day you tell all the students that you have zero points. You all currently have an F. And as you do things in the class, you're going to earn points. And as you earn enough points for a D, for a C, for a B, for an A, then you'll be earning those levels. It's using this level concept. Um, and then you give the students a menu of options and say, here are things you can do to earn points. So some things are solo activities. Some things are group activities. They demonstrate different forms of learning. Um, the idea is that you give the students many different ways that they can earn those points and they continue to build towards the end. And at the end of the semester, you see where everyone has reached. Now, the the reality of that is it's it's really just a, a veneer over our traditional grading system. You're just taking the old grading system and flipping it around. It's uh, the conceptual difference of what's going on, whether you're building up in points or, or what we usually tell students, you know, is you have 100% and you're losing points as you go along. You're losing that A. Um, it's a mindset shift to say you're starting at zero and working up as compared to starting at the top and you're dropping as you're being penalized. Uh, but what I found when I tried to apply it is that students couldn't get a good idea of where they stood in the class. So we're at the halfway point, and everyone still has an F, according to this system. Uh, 
And students had a real struggle conceptualizing, well, what grade am I going to get? And this was not a, a gaming class that I applied it to. It was a uh, class about uh, communication. Um, it was a required class for undergrads. Most of the research that's been done has been focused on using this in classes with uh, gaming classes, where you have gamers that are very comfortable living in that space. But when you have people that are not gamers and you give them this, this uh, experience point structure, uh, it caused some real grief for the students because they really couldn't get a handle on where they stood in the class. Right. And I was listening to the, I think it was a Freakonomics podcast where they were talking about how if people had something uh, that they were going to be uh, more eager to try and keep it than they are to try and earn it. Like at a game show where if you say, you know, here's X amount of money, now you have to risk it, which is sort of what you're doing in the kind of classroom where you say, you've got 100% or you've got an A right now and then every time you do a paper that is less than 100% or do a test that is less than 100%, you'll be losing off of your grade, which is exactly the opposite of, hey, you've got an F now and you're trying to build yourself up to a higher level. So, I mean, it's like the stresses there are completely different. What I found for the students is it really wasn't worth their confusion to have that uh, superficial flip of the grading system. So I said, you know, that aspect is not really worth pursuing. I also pursued leaderboards. So in a different class, I gave all the students pseudonyms. Actually, they got to pick their own pseudonyms, their own character names, but no one else knew who anyone was. And then each week I did leaderboards showing where students stood compared to each other. And what I found, and uh, and later on as I dissolved the leaderboards, I talked to the students to see what was going on. The top performing students got inspired by the leaderboards. There were four or five students that were just fighting for top place. The rest of the class were demotivated by the leaderboards because what they had was this group of students because it was this class where you had this pile of things you could do to earn more and more points. You had a group of students that were just skyrocketing up the leaderboards and then this big gap and the rest of the class. And people at the bottom were demotivated. And the problem is that it's not the top performing students that we really need to motivate more it's the students that are at the bottom of the leaderboards are the ones that are of concern. And, and as I've then looked into it, I find this other, – other teachers have talked about this problem of having these leaderboards. It's a very demoting, demotivating experience for the kids at the bottom of the heap. And so that was interesting to bring to light to say, you know, be very careful if you're using these leaderboards because it can be demotivating to those students who don't need that demotivation. That demotivation. Yeah, well, one of the one of the big issues that we face at our school, we have a um, quite a large body of um, low socioeconomic students, and traditionally, um, our bell curve for educational achievement is uh, centred a little bit lower than than you know what obviously we would uh, like, and also that we tend to have a long tail, so we have you know. Um, a percentage, obviously, of, of high-achieving students, a, percent, a, a large grouping around the middle, and then a long tail of students who are below um, the expected level and uh, struggle to catch up. What sorts? Is there anything that you've found in the in the gamification process that can really help reinforce that or or build that motivational factor for those students? So, what we ended up, what I ended up uh, playing with, is. Um allowing the students. So what I did in this in this class is we did this bad gamification system. I then let the students vote whether they wanted to stay with this system or not. Um, they said not, and I said, all right, you're going to make your own system. So now I put them in groups and said, you're, you guys create the syllabus for the rest of this class. 
and then we'll vote as a class. And what we ended up moving into as that class, and this is a, a technique I would use for, for classes in the future where I wanted to try and motivate the students. Students set the grade they wanted to earn at the end of the class. So each student said, I want to earn an A. I want to earn a B or whatever. They would set the grade they wanted to earn, and then they would lay out, here's what I'm going to do to demonstrate I have met the class objectives to meet that grade. So each student got to lay out, and then I negotiated with each student to reach a point where I felt the workload they had created for themselves was fair. And so what ended up happening is the students who were underperforming, the students that were demotivated by the leaderboards, really turned around when they were able to say, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I want to get an A in this class. Here's what I'm going to do to do that. And the, the quality and quantity of the work that these students started producing just was a 180-degree flip because now they were – it was like you said earlier. What you find is when the students set goals, when they're moving towards their own goals, when they're moving towards their own things that they've set, they're a lot more motivated to get things done because they've had to reflect upon what they've done in the class. They've had to reflect upon how they're going to reach these outcomes, how they're going to reach your course outcomes, and then they are achieving the own, their own goals they set for themselves. Now, the downside is it created a lot of work because now I'm doing with you know 20 independent studies uh, basically. But it really was a real flip in the engagement that students had with this class. It sounds like this was a throwback towards the, hey, you're all at a zero, but you're climbing your way up the ladder. Uh, you know, Pick from this menu of items, except for you're not telling them, hey, you're starting at the bottom. You're saying, here's the goal that you need to do to achieve whatever it is you're great objective is in the class. Right. I let them it, – it's letting them – and part of the research on self-determination theory uh, is you want to – there's three things you really want to do, and one of those things is autonomy. You want to give that learner a sense of control over what's going on, and that's, that's really what's, what's going on here is they're feeling like, hey, I'm establishing my own little world, and here's my own achievements that I'm going to head towards this letter grade. Um, and in the class I ran, every student except for one – carried out their plan completely. Only one student didn't then carry out the plan that they they had set for himself, um, which was pretty interesting given that I was coming out of this place where we had these leaderboards where four or five students were motivated and the rest of the students were just not even showing up. I did actually even have some students drop the class uh, because of this leaderboard setup. So it was interesting how demotivating that was and and by flipping that around, the students got engaged. Another really important lesson I learned, uh, so something else I tried in one of my classes, is I gave the students a set of required assignments and a set of optional assignments. And the way I explained it is I said, all right, if you do the required assignments for the class, you'll, you'll end up getting a C. You'll end up passing the class. This is the bare minimum you need to pass the class. Then, as you do these optional assignments, that will raise your grade higher. So if you want to get a B or you want to get an A, you need to do more optional assignments. I had five times in the class where the students could choose to turn in an optional assignment. What I learned is it is a very, very, very bad idea to call something optional in the classroom when it carries course value with it. I was thinking that too. (laughs) were not happy at all um, because they were faced with these opportunities to do an optional assignment 
and many of them would not take them because they were doing assignments in other classes. Or they'd say it's optional or whatever. And then we get to the end, and we're looking. I'm looking at their grades. I'm like, well, all right, you know, you did the, you did, you, you, yes, you got an A on all these core assignments, but you didn't do any of the optional assignments. So you have passed the class. You did the bare minimum. That's a C. And there were some people that were very, very unhappy about that, saying, well, why am I getting a C? I got an A on all my required assignments. Like, yes, that, that's the bare minimum. So I, I learned a really important lesson in that class, and, and that is to, that term optional, even though conceptually that's what it is. Um, the, it, as one student said in their comments back to me, they said, you encouraged us to be lazy by calling these assignments optional. Um, and really every assignment in school is optional. Right. Well, and, and the, well, it, actually, if they didn't do all the required assignments, they failed the class. And that was the way I presented it. I said, this, this is the core. You have to do these assignments. And if you don't do these, you get an F. And then if you do these, you get a C. And then you can get a higher grade by doing these optional assignments and adding in. And, and I had a long list of optional assignments for them to choose from. So rather than use that approach, I'm revitalizing. I'm doing teaching that class again this semester. Now I'm giving them t- days where they have a choice of assignments. But I'm not calling them optional assignments. But they, they are expected to turn something in. But there are choice of assignments rather than you can do it or not do it uh, because the, so many – in this case, this was this undergraduate class. It was required class, um, and the students just – the again, in the better performing students had no problem with this. I think a lot of this gamification is actually going to – it can help or – demotivate if you – it's the idea of I give you so much rope to hang – you can hang yourself with. Um, it can – demotivate or provide opportunities for the poor performing students to, again, not do well, or it can really help boost those students up if they are feeling empowered by the system you've put in place. And that's what I'm realizing is the gamification doesn't help the good students perform better um, as much as it has an impact on those lower performing students. Well, we've had a, um, a focus in our school with, um, well, we have a requirement rather to do individual learning plans for some groups of students. So if they're particularly, um, you know, low achievers or particularly high achievers, or if they have a particular special learning need or, or whatever else, then, um, you know, teachers need to do an individual learning plan for those particular students. Um, one of the things that I've tried over the last couple of years is to use individual learning plans for all of my students, but rather than having them being um, sort of something that's opaque, something that you know I keep in my planning folder and, and away from prying eyes, um, I've given all of the kids copies of their own individual learning plans and, and really encouraged them as a part of the process of setting their goals and you know taking a hand in the shape shaping of their their particular learning plan. And that seems you know to tie in with what you were saying earlier, Scott. Subjectively, in any case, I've found that to be a really positive experience um, with my students. But again, that that's a subjective um, thought. How you're talking a lot about you know your use of these particular processes and so forth. Um, how easy is this to scale up or down ages? I mean, you're talking about undergrads and things like that. What about um, lower down into into high school or, or even into primary schools? You know, if I'm using Australian <laughs> terms. You know, to be honest, I don't know because I am teaching at the college level, and so I don't know what would happen. And maybe Don would have a guess as to what would happen if you enabled the kids. Would would the kids, uh, younger kids, be able to set their own goals? Would they? Would you be able to take versions of this and 
empower the kids to have choice? Um, or have they just been pressed so hard into a system where the teacher tells you what to do, which is what I ran into actually um, with the undergrads, that the teacher should tell you what to do, that when you're given choice, it, it, it's hard to conceptualize what that actually means and, and how you can take advantage of that, that freedom. Well, I've, <clears throat> with my son, I know it would be an issue of finding which one of the choices looked like the least amount of work um, and, and sort of diving in there uh, because he would want to get back to his video games or whatever else his friends were doing at the time. But I think that as he, you know, dealt with it more, he would be able to, you know, make better choices as far as what more appeals to his actual skill set or what, uh, you know, what, what he'd be able to do better and what he, you know, he's not going to worry about whether he learns this better doing assignment A or assignment B. But, you know, he's a, you know, freshly minted teenager. And so there's no telling, you know, how that would work in any other age group. I've, I've, you know, not not to answer my own question, but I've got a little bit of experience um, dealing with goal setting at a younger age group. My The, the kids I teach are sort of between the ages of uh, seven and ten years old. Um, and I have found that, that initially um, goal setting is an extremely difficult thing to do with kids of that age, not only because they have come through uh, the junior areas of the school expecting a certain thing from their teacher and their education. As you said, um, Scott, in terms of, you know, they're expecting the teacher to, to lay out the, the expectations and so forth, but also because they find it difficult to think specific enough to make those goals meaningful. So, you know, if they're setting a goal to do with their uh, literacy, you know, they might say, I want to get better at my writing, but but not really be able to articulate what that means. Are they talking about their handwriting or are they talking about using description in their um, in their story writing, are they talking about vocab or their spelling? And so, I've done. Um, I, I've found what what has been successful is taking um, a long time, and that's usually for for me about a term to two terms. Really, um, starting off with those bigger goals, but then asking those leading questions. Well, what does that mean? What will it look like? Um, you know, what do you mean specifically? And trying to nail them down into something that that is something that is much more specific. Um, but also, you know, you also want it to be something that's a Attainable so that they can see their success. And I think that's something that's really important. You talked at the start a little bit about, um, in terms of um, class control and uh, behaviour management, um, Scott, how... How, how have you related gamification to that aspect? And, you know, not necessarily the academia, more so the, you know, behavior management, the, the class control and structures in the classroom. Well, one of the uh, things that I, I, I did a few things to work with that, and, and I had some successes. So I had some things that I tried along the way that also did work. One of the things that I did is each day when I came to class, I had a... Uh, I, I had a large plastic ring that I would wear on one of my fingers. And if someone in the class said something really interesting or engaging, uh, move the conversation forward, I would give them that ring and I would say, keep that, bring it to class, you'll want it someday. I didn't explain anything more like that. And that's using this concept of an achievement, that in, when you're playing games, achievements are these unexpected rewards that pop up. And what I found is that as I did that, uh, people did engage more in the conversation. They engaged more in what was going on uh, because they never knew when something was going to happen. Uh, that's actually – there's different sorts of reward systems, and the most uh, 
uh, motivating of the reward systems is when you don't know how frequently a reward will come. And this is the model that's used in Diablo and World of Warcraft and these things where you never know when you're going to kill a bad guy and get really good loot. Um, so I did something similar with uh, – I had the students do another assignment, and they were doing uh, a presentation, and they were asked to give everyone constructive criticism as everyone was doing presentations. So I gave out index cards. For each each presenter, they um, wrote down constructive criticism. And then what I told the students before, I said, I'm going to pick one of these piles of constructive criticisms and grade them. So I'm not going to grade all of them, but I am going to grade one pile, but it will be picked at random. And so what that does is that kept the students much more engaged in doing a good job all the time. Um, but it also reduced my workload of trying to <laughs> not grade 3,000 pieces of constructive criticism. Um, and the same thing happens with using that sort of uh, the pop quiz structure when, when there's going to be uh, – I had in-class activities. I didn't use pop quizzes, but – actually, I used a few quizzes, but there, there were days in the class where activities went on where they earned a few points for those activities, but they didn't know what days those were going to be. So that, again, created that sort of random reward structure that got people to attend class more frequently. Um, now, again, that's using rewards and using these game-based elements to engage people. Uh, but these are things that, that did work more, and they were less overhead as far as – because it's the other thing is you're balancing as the teacher how much overhead you're going to use. Um, Something else that worked very well on a game structure, and this is more on the academic side of things, but the, the difference between a game-based learning and learning through a game structure and the way we normally do it, we normally have this high-risk testing structure. You learn something, you have this high-risk test where you have to perform, and then we move on. And I instead used a structure where students were allowed to redo assignments. So they were able to – and that's the, a gaming approach, that you try something, you fail – you learn from your failure, and you redo it to improve. And that redo structure that I had in the class was really powerful to helping people to accomplish what they were trying to accomplish and to get better and to improve. It also, I think, helped them to take risks because I encouraged them to do things that are difficult, try it, and then you'll have it. I'll give you feedback, and you'll have a chance to redo it. And That, that gaming sounds like structure, a lot of work. Try, it is a lot of work. But you have to decide, is that work worth it? And in this class, this was a class about public speaking, and, uh, and so I wanted them to come out of this class feeling confident that they could do it. And if all I did was give them one shot to do their five-minute talk, here's your D, you didn't do a good job, well, I'm not going to be able to do that. Instead, I say, all right, here's your D, but it, you can redo this in one week and give, it, give this presentation again and raise that grade and then redo it again. It really helped. I got to see the students grow and develop, and they came out with this confidence that they could actually do some of these tasks. So, so, but that does not fit well in a, a, a classroom in our K-12 system where they have to have these high-performance tests where that you set up this structure and say, no, you get one shot, and if you fail, you fail. There's no redoing it. Um, and so that game structure, and that's really a, a game this, – this game-based learning is about trying, failing, and learning from that. But that's the current uh, conflict between the researchers in, in, in games for learning research here and the classroom settings is that the researchers are creating these systems based around trying, failing, and redoing, which doesn't fit in a classroom that is about – one-shot, high-stakes, high-performance. And we've got a real problem because of that. I think, you know, you're, you're spot on. You hit, you hit a, um, 
a really sensitive point in education, you know, from a from a political point of view, from a um, an ability for uh, educational experts to be able to, you know, statistically analyse the performance of schools and teachers and students and so forth. Those sorts of um, high performance tests or standardised tests are they have their place, I suppose. But I, you know, I, I would hate to see them ever govern how the classroom operates. You know for a majority of the time you know they are they are important they do have their place but you know i really you know i I still think that there is a really strong place in the classroom um in in that k-12 setting for you know exactly what you're talking about scott and i think that that by doing that and yes it does take a lot of work but by doing that you are going to be um you know encouraging students to come out with a with a more positive attitude towards their education and it strikes me that the current education system is really designed around office work or factory work where you're given a task you return the task you're judged on that task whereas in today's culture there's a lot more conversation and a lot more tries and a lot more hey, we are working this through, um, that, that kids have access to both on the internet and in video games. And, and in, you know, the culture itself is sort of changing um, in the long run. And, and schools are not office buildings where the objective is not to get 100% on this test. The objective is to prove your competency and a knowledge. Or actually, it's not even to prove your competency. It's really just to actually have that competency. If if a child could show that they have all of this information without having, I mean, if they could internalize it and get it, then you've succeeded as a teacher, whether or not they've ever done a test or they've ever done a quiz. It's the, it's the, the old um, adage, isn't it? You know, you, you teach the, the subject, you don't teach the test. And I think um, sometimes, you know, I certainly speak for, um, you know, my educational setting, I think sometimes that the focus does go a little bit awry and, um, you know, the, the focus does become those standardised tests um, rather than the quality of education that happens in between them. Uh, and that, I think, can be a, a really, uh, you know, can yeah, be a shame. that's very bad in the U.S. They, they're, they're tying uh, the money that schools get and the money that individual teachers get to the performance of kids on these tests. So the classrooms do become a, a test preparation space. That that's that goal is to get the kids ready to perform in this high stakes test, and the stakes are very high. Uh, it's really caused a problem. So last year I was on a sabbatical at, at MIT, and part of that sabbatical for me was exploring where I wanted to move my research. And one of the groups I worked with focused on games in K through 12 classrooms, and they were very frustrated in that they were finding no traction in getting their games into the classrooms any longer because the teacher were saying it's not worth it for me to take a risk on changing how I teach because the stakes are so high for the kids not being able to pass this test that I can't consider trying a new teaching method. And it's and I'm hearing that across the, the discipline of educational gaming, that there's this real divide um, that's getting bigger and bigger as we have a heavier reliance on these tests. I think it becomes, you know, unfortunately, it becomes a push for accountability, um, not just in students, but in teachers and schools, um, and then comes back to the whole politicising of education and and um, and so on. And, and you know, I, I, I think it's a real shame. I think it does dilute the, um, the, the avenues that could be explored for an enriching and, and positive educational experience for students. Yep. 
One of the things that I put together for people that want to try, because even within the structure, you can still use some gamification elements to help people find meaning in what they're learning. I, I put together a recipe for meaningful gamification, a framework around the letters in the word recipe. And there are things to think about when you're creating any sort of lesson. Using any of these elements can help make what's going on a little bit more meaningful. Uh, the R is for reflection creating situations where you get your learners to reflect upon what they're doing and to talk about that and, and demonstrate that reflection. And you, that's where you can use these badges. E for exposition, um, adding a story layer to what's going on where you ask the, the students to engage themselves within a larger scale story. In my speaking class, I had the students take on the role of a, 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 a working for a company of their choice and all semester they were the communications director for that company and every assignment they did was tied into that story and the students really got into that because they were part of making that story for themselves uh, C for choice allowing the, the students to have choice in what they're engaging with can be more empowering um, I for information this is this idea of giving the students information about why it is they're doing what they're doing Instead of just giving them the tasks, help them understand how learning this task is going to lead into other things and helping them be informed about that. P for play, using concepts of play whenever possible. And that's, that's that try and fail because play is really about pushing your boundaries by trying new things and giving them that space to fail and to redo and to learn from that. And E for engagement, um, that creating situations where the students engage with each other about the challenges they're facing, about the things they're doing well, can help create opportunities where things are more meaningful. So even if you're stuck within this testing space on individual activities, taking elements from that any way you can to help someone find more meaning in what they're learning is going to make them more likely to engage with the activities in the class. Well, that sounds like a um, fantastic thing, Scott. We've run a long time this episode, but it's been a really, really interesting discussion from my point of view. I really feel like we've only touched on the surface of it. So um, I really appreciate that, Scott. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about with the gamification and the, the studies you've been doing or the work you've been doing? I think the best thing to do uh, so that the listeners uh, can... Uh, can can move on to other things is to point you to my website where I put all these studies and results and papers and videos um, at becauseplaymatters.com uh, you'll find there's a video there on a recipe for meaningful gamification where I talk to that you'll find the papers that back up what I'm talking about and as I'm writing a paper now on meaningful gamification in the classroom that'll go up on that site so I think if people want to learn more that's where I would point them and I think before we disappear, we need to reflect just a little bit, you know, circling back into what Scott says, is it sounds like <laughs> right now that, you know, uh, bringing this into the classroom and, and into the libraries is in a meaningful way is going to be a lot more work. Just, I mean, right up front that while we're breaking ground on these kinds of topics and, and how to develop it, that, you know, we're still developing our menus of items and we're we're creating the options for uh, the people who participate in our programs to engage in what we're trying to do in a, in a very meaningful way. But I think that in the long run, it's going to be, uh, you know, a formula is good, formula is bad. You can get over, over tied to something. But that sort of like in uh, some of the video games, like in World of Warcraft or another one that I really loved was Rift, where, you know, players can sort of choose their own path but there are step stones along the way that they can choose. Am I going to go down this direction when I develop my personal character or am I going to, to choose uh, you know, a different kind of activity and, and that 
as we formalize some of those, and then it'll be a little more modular so that teachers or uh, librarians can more easily pick apart and say, well, here are the options I have the ability to give you at this time. And, and it won't be so quite so confusing or so stressful for the teachers or the students. Would you say that's about right? Or? Yeah, well, one of the ways to offload some of that work, because it is, if you go in front and say, I'm going to set up this whole system, it's a ton of work. And one of the ways to help with that is to actually have the learners help you create the system. That you create some larger guidelines and you work with your learners to have them create their pathways, their signposts, and you work to refine it. And then that becomes part of the menu. So the idea is that each time you engage with a new class, they are further developing this system because they are picking from things. that. And if you present to your next class, hey, here's a bunch of stuff that the kids last semester put together. We're going to start with that and then adjust it. Then you're actually – and that's, that's, again, this information concept. You're taking them out of the idea of I'm doing something because someone else is telling me, and you're putting them into the mode of, hey, I want to engage with this thing, and I'm going to help control my learning. And now they're going to be more engaged with what's going on. And I think by having a good set of guidelines, you can avoid a fiasco in your classroom. Uh, that, that, that's probably the essential thing is figure out sort of – what direction you're willing to allow things to go and 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 have a, a basic idea of a framework that you are willing to violate or change if necessary, but uh, that, that that's going to be essential to success. Yeah, well, it's absolutely, it's been a, a really interesting discussion, Scott, and as I said, I, I really, um, you know, I hope the listeners feel the same, but I've certainly got a lot to think about, um, you know, for my classroom as um, our new school year is about to start up in a, in a couple of weeks, so there's a lot for me to think about in, in different ways I can approach some of the things that I'll be teaching this year, so I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, yeah, thank you very much. All right, thank you all, and uh, I will leave you to he- head back to <laughs> to my own gamification of setting up my little worlds for my students this semester as well. <laughs> so, what was your what was your website again, Scott? Uh, becauseplaymatters.com. That's where you can find articles, videos, and uh, a lot of stuff. And and if you need to get more of the theories behind this and the research behind this, that's also in the publications area. You'll find some scholarly papers that actually come at this. This comes out of actual research um, on creating participatory museums, like science museums. Comes out of research on play and learning theories from folks like Desi and Ryan. Um, and uh, but, uh, if you want to read one book on this topic, I'd push you to a book called Punished by Rewards by Alfie Cohn. It'll really get you thinking about uh, using rewards uh, for what we're doing. Oh, it sounds fantastic. And if listeners have got any questions uh, or comments, uh, we really value any feedback and we'd love to hear them. Um, I'd love to have you back on another time, Scott. As I said, I really feel like we've only sort of scratched the surface in a lot of these. Um, you know, we've covered covered rather a, a lot um, and not necessarily in a, in a huge amount of depth. So perhaps that's a topic for a future episode. But, uh, yeah, if listeners would like to contact us, they can do that at uh, schoolsandlibraries at gmail.com or they can head over to our website, gamesschoolslibraries.com. I'm Donald Dennis and... I'm Giles Pritchard. And I'm Scott Nicholson. And this has been Games in Schools and Libraries. Games in Schools and Libraries is kindly hosted by the Games for Educators website. You can find them at www.g4ed.com. You can subscribe to their newsletter, check out games through their game finder, and of course, it's the home of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. Drop by and post comments on the episodes. We love feedback. Games in Schools and Libraries is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. 
you a copy of this license, visit our webpage at the Games for Educators website.